Father in heaven, we thank you that we can enter into your presence with singing and into your courts with praise. We thank you, Father, for the many blessings, both seen and unseen, that were showered upon us this past week. Father, this morning we sit at your feet in great expectation that you will teach us from your word. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds that we may be drawn closer still to thee. We thank you, Father, for we ask it in Jesus' name. As we embark upon this second presentation of the Godhead, I want you to keep in mind that as we talk and discuss about God, we have to remember that we are talking about God. And there are some things about God that it is just not for us to understand. There are going to be some blanks. There are going to be some unanswered questions, even perhaps a few unresolved passages of Scripture. But this morning, as we take a look at the Word of God, we want to find where the weight of the evidence lies on this particular doctrine of the Trinity. I want to start with a passage from uh, the uh, from the inspiration from inspiration, and it looks like my clicker is not going to work. There it goes. Thank you so much. Love technology, don't you? Uh, Testimonies for the Church, Volume Three, Page Two Fifty Five. Um, Ellen White says this: "Those who desire to doubt will have plenty of room." We read this last week, but I want to remind ourselves of it. God does not propose to remove all occasions. For unbelief, he gives evidence which must be carefully investigated with a humble mind and a teachable spirit. And all should decide from the what? Weight of the evidence. Now, just in that statement alone, by the weight of the evidence, kind of gives you the idea that there may be some things that aren't going to be fully resolved, but we cast ourselves or we cast our lot where the weight of the evidence lies. She goes on three years later talking about the weight of the evidence, and she says this in Testimonies for the Church, volume 4, page 232 and 233, she says, God gives sufficient evidence for the candid mind to believe, but he who turns from the weight of the evidence, because there are a few things which he cannot make plain to his finite understanding, will be left in the cold, chilling atmosphere of unbelief and questioning doubts, and will what? make a shipwreck of faith. And by God's grace, none of us will make a shipwreck of our faith. Amen? So we need to know where the weight of the evidence is, not just on this particular Bible doctrine, but on any teaching of the Word of God. We want to see where that weight is and then carefully investigate the weight of the evidence and then stand where that evidence points us. To stand. Now, we're looking at three particular points in our study together on the doctrine of the Trinity, of the Godhead, and we've kind of summarized them this way. Uh, we looked at this one last week, the unity of the three persons of the Godhead. We spent ample time uh, solidifying in our minds that there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The three of them are equal, as we see in the great Gospel Commission in Matthew chapter twenty 
28 uh, in the last few verses there. So we spent a lot of time defining this particular point so that we could build off of it. There are three separate individuals working towards the common goal of the salvation of men. Today we're going to take a look at the second two. And as I put this presentation together, I realized that I probably should have done one presentation on the second point and then another one on the third point. But we'll do what we can to get through our material together today. The second point is the full eternal deity of Christ that he has always existed. And the third point is the personhood and full deity of the Holy Spirit, that he is a person that has also full deity just like the Father and just like the Son. Now, as I mentioned last week, any most anti-Trinitarian sentiments all kind of boiled down to an objection to all three of these points. That there are not three that comprise the Godhead. That at some point Jesus was created in the distant eon passes of eternity or of the past. And that the Holy Spirit is not a person, but he is some force or spirit or something like that that emanates from God. Most anti-Trinitarian doctrine will go back to those particular points objecting in these three areas. So we have to know from the Bible, where is the weight of the evidence on these three points? We've already done it on the first one. Let's, let's take a look at these next two points in our study together this morning. So we're going to start things off by looking at the, uh, the eternal deity of Jesus, that he has always existed. Now, before we do that, I want to just solidify in your mind yet again that the Bible writers fully understood that the Son of God was God also. Let me read to you a few passages here so that we can understand this. Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, the Bible says, "...looking for the blessed hope." And the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there Titus refers to Jesus as God, our Savior. And then we see this also in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit. God was manifest in the flesh. Who was it that was manifested in the flesh? Was it God the Father? No. Was it God the Holy Spirit? No. It was the Son of God that was manifested in the flesh. And here, Timothy refers, or Paul rather, to Timothy, refers to God that was manifest in the flesh. Jesus Christ refers to him as God. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 30, the Bible says, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness. This is talking about John the Baptist. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for who? Our God. Who was John the Baptist? Who did John the Baptist come to prepare a way for? He's clearly, we see that in his ministry, that he came to prepare the way for the coming Messiah, Jesus himself. But in the Old Testament, writer here refers to the Messiah as God. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, the Bible says, Therefore the Lord himself shall, uh, sorry, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. What event is that? The birth of Jesus, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name and his name will be what? Emmanuel. Now, those of you that know the Bible, and I think most of us know this point, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, the Bible defines the name Emmanuel for us, and that name is what? God with us. That is the name that was to be given to Jesus, God with us. Now, 
Jesus could not be created and be equal with God. And the Bible tells us that he was equal with God. So he couldn't have been created if he was equal with God because God cannot be created. If God is created, then he is not God, but he is a creation instead of the creator. And the Bible makes this very clear here. I think that if you were to just, if we were to just think about it a little bit, if the Bible writers are defining that Jesus is God, then I believe it would stand to reason that as God, he has always existed. Now, we don't have to just kind of, you know, theorize that. We can actually prove it from scripture. The Bible tells us that he has always existed. Let me give you a few passages here on this. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, the Bible says this, but thou Bethlehem, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from what? From old, from what? From everlasting. Now who is this talking about? Who was it that was to be born in Bethlehem? Jesus, the Messiah, and this is an Old Testament messianic prophecy, prophesying the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one. And the Bible tells us, the Bible writer says, that his going forth were to be from old, from everlasting. Now, it's interesting that, uh, as you understand from the, the, that this passage is talking about the birth of Christ, but not only do we understand this from a biblical standpoint, but even the prophet in the book, Patriarchs and Prophets and Desire of Ages, she specifically applies this Bible passage to the coming of Jesus in Bethlehem. And the Old Testament writer says that his goings, his going forth would be from old, from everlasting. Let's look at another one here. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. The Bible says this, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. What's the next one? The Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the what? Now, again, this is another messianic prophecy here that's talking about a child shall be born. This is talking about the coming of Jesus when he would be born in Bethlehem, as we just read a few moments ago. But I think this passage is particularly fascinating because what we find is that Isaiah, in one breath, he shows us the depth of the complexity of God the Son. Notice all of these terms that he uses to describe Jesus. He describes him as a child as a son, as a counselor, as God, as father, as prince. He is a very complex being. He is all of these things and more. Isaiah is trying to describe the deepness, the complexity of God the Son, and he uses all of these terms to describe him. Not only does he call him the mighty God, but he also calls him the what? Everlasting Father. Now, some people get a little, maybe a little tripped up by the fact that Isaiah here refers to him as the everlasting father. But be assured from our study together last week that Jesus is not the father and the father is not Jesus. When Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane and he poured out his heart to his father, he was not praying to himself. He was praying to his father, which was in heaven. At the baptism of Christ, we hear the voice, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus wasn't talking to himself. 
When we see the three, the three God, the three, uh, the three aspects of God in the uh, great gospel commission, they're all equal there. So when, what does the, what does Isaiah mean when he calls him the everlasting father? Jesus, as we will see here in just a minute, and most of us already know this, Jesus was the father of this world in the sense that he was the one who created all things. He created this earth. He is the great life giver and the great life sustainer. Not only did he create this world, but it is through him through his teachings, through his blood that he has shed, he has given life to you and to me. And in that sense, I believe Isaiah is trying to portray to us the father aspect of Jesus when he refers to him as the everlasting father. Clearly from scripture here, we have two passages that seem to indicate that Jesus did not or was not created at some distant point in the past, but he has always existed as you would only expect from God. Now here's another passage that you are well acquainted with in John chapter 1 verses 1 1 and 2 and then verse 14. You've read this a number of times. It's probably the first passage that comes to your mind when you think about the Godhead. The Bible says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, of course, our Jehovah's Witness friends say they have it uh, that the Word was a God in the small g there. We're not polytheistic. We don't worship many gods. Amen? We worship one God. We are monotheistic. We worship one God. So here it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then it says this, the same was in the beginning with God. Now that would stand to reason. If God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are God, then they would have always existed together. He would have been in the beginning with God. And then he defines who he is in verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. This God who is the word who dwelt with God the Father in the beginning and became flesh, that is referring to none other than Jesus, our Messiah. It's clear from Scripture that Jesus has always existed. There are a number of passages on this particular point, and I can't help it. i got to share with you just a couple of more. Is that okay? All right. Just to see the weight of the evidence here. This is what we're looking for. That's what Ellen White tells us to do. Look for the weight of the evidence. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17, the Bible says, And he, talking about Jesus, and he was before all things, and by him all things what? Everything that has been created consists or exists because of the sustaining power of Jesus. Amen? Somebody should say amen for that. Thank you, Jesus, for your sustaining power. So the Bible says that he was before all things. Here's another one. This is from First uh, John chapter 1 and verse 1. The Bible says this. That which was from the what? Beginning. This is John talking about his experience with Jesus. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the what? Word of life. He says that he was from the beginning. Now, there are a number of stories in the New Testament that we could draw in that are analogous of Jesus' eternal existence. And I'll share with you one. Remember that story when Jesus was in the presence of the uh, religious leaders And he said that before Abraham was, 
What did he say? I am. Now, when Jesus said, I am, you should read the account of that in the book, Desire of Ages. Alan White said, a hush fell upon the assembly. Because he had taken the name of God Almighty and applied it to himself. They were so amazed that he did that thing. And I want to tell you something this morning, brothers and sisters. When he took that name, I am, he did not do it apologetically. Listen to this. This is from Desire of Ages, page 24 and 25. She says, it was Christ who from the bush on Mount Horeb spoke to Moses saying, what? I am that I am. And clearly in that passage in Exodus where Moses is asking God, when the Israelites ask, who has sent me? When he says that God, the Bible there makes it clear that he is talking to God. And from the burning bush, God, which we know to be Jesus, he claims that title, I am that I am. He said, tell them that the great I am has sent you. The self-existent one, the all-powerful one, the eternal God is the one who is sending you. And not only did he send Moses, but he sends you and I as well. Amen? Now, there are other stories we could pull in, but, but for the sake of time, we won't, we won't do that. But what I want to do is I want to make a quick statement here, and you'll have to forgive me. My, my, my purpose in this series is not to deal with all the nuances of this particular doctrine. I just want to kind of give you the broad overview, the clear Bible passages, look at where the weight of the evidence is, and then we can move forward from there. Now, are there some problem Bible passages that are a little bit difficult to understand in its description of God? Sure there are. I'm not going to deny that. There are some difficult texts that, you know, maybe when we get to heaven, we'll have a broader understanding. I think even now we can understand them to a certain degree. But are there passages like the firstborn of every creature, talking about Jesus? Uh, Are there passages that talk about uh, Jesus being the only begotten? Yes, there are passages that refer to these things. Does Jesus refer to himself as proceeding forth and came from God. Yes, there is. But you know, the Bible also says that the Holy Spirit proceeds and comes from God as well. Do we say from that that God creates the Holy Spirit at some point that he didn't exist? There are problem Bible passages. There are, there are texts that are a little bit more challenging to understand. But what I want to suggest to you this morning, and we're not going to get into all the details on this. Maybe we can do a part four later on where we deal with the objections. That's not my purpose this morning. But I want you to know this. That as Adventists, historically, we have always interpreted difficult Bible passages through the clear ones. If you've ever been to a Bible prophecy seminar, you'll see this done over and over again. When we present the doctrine of the state of the dead, we present the clear passages of Scripture that death is asleep. And then, after that, we deal with some of the more complex Bible passages. We, we, pre- we present the clear, and then from that, we interpret the more complex because we're working off of the premise that the Bible never, what, contradicts itself, okay? So yes, there are difficult passages, but we have clear, plain passages of Scripture that cannot be contradicted. If you contradict those Bible passages, you're making the Bible not agree with itself. Now listen to what the Spirit of Prophecy says. We've looked at the Bible. Let's look at what the Spirit of Prophecy says. Desire of Ages, page 530. Incidentally, if you read the book Desire of Ages from beginning to end, you will find that the Desire of Ages is a Trinitarian book. 
In other words, it believes, uh, she be- believed in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. She wrote this in 1898 towards the end of her ministry. And if you'll notice, as you take note of the quotes that I use in, my semin- in this uh, series, you will notice that almost all of the spirit of prophecy references that she makes, the specific points that she makes about Jesus being God and the Holy Spirit and the three aspects of God, you will notice that she makes all of those statements towards the end of her ministry because she begins to get a clearer understanding of this particular doctrine towards the end of her ministry. And we're going to talk more about that in our next study. But listen to this. Desire of Ages, page 530. She said this, In Christ is life. Original, unborrowed, underived. He that hath the Son hath life. The divinity of Christ is the believer's assurance of eternal life. Would you say amen to that? So what is Christ? In Christ is what? Life, and that life is what? Original, unborrowed, and? Listen to me carefully. If Jesus was created, he borrowed life. If Jesus was created, it is not original to him. She makes it very plain here that Jesus has always existed. Life is original to him. It is unborrowed to him. It is underived from another source. He that hath the Son hath life. Somebody should say amen to that. Very clear statement that she makes. Signs of the Time, August 29, 1900. She says this, Christ is the preexistent self-existent son of God. In other words, he exists because he is. He doesn't exist because somebody else has created him. He is self-existent. Listen to this. In speaking of his pre-existence, Christ carries the mind back through the dateless ages. Listen to this. He assures us that there never was a time when he was not in close fellowship with the eternal God. Is that clear? Never was a time when he wasn't in fellowship with the eternal God. Again, he is self-existent. He has always existed. He has existed from eternity past. There was never a time when he was not. Review and Herald, April 5, 1906. It says this, if Christ made all things, he existed before all things. I love her reasoning. She's very clear. The words spoken in regard to this are so decisive that no one need to be left in what? There's always room for doubt if you want to, but there's clear statements that are made that can remove doubt if you so choose. Christ, she goes on, Christ was God essentially and in the highest sense. He was with God from all eternity. God over all, blessed forevermore. And then she says this, the Lord Jesus Christ, the divine son of God, existed from eternity, a distinct person, yet one with the Father. Is that clear? He has always existed. He has always been one with the Father, but he is a distinctly separate individual from the Father. I praise the Lord for the spirit of prophecy. She just makes these points very clear in our minds so that we can know exactly where we need to stand on this particular point. So I think it's clear from not only the Bible, but also from the spirit of prophecy that Jesus is the son of God. He is the second person of the Godhead and he has always existed from eternity past. He has always been 
in the presence of the Father. There's never been a time when Jesus did not exist. Now, I know that's difficult for us to understand, and I don't think it's meant for us to understand it. Our life always has beginnings and ends. Everything starts and everything ends in our lives. But when it comes to God, there is no beginning and there is no end. And I know that's hard for you to understand. It's hard for me to understand as well. And I don't think it's meant, we're meant to understand that particular part of God. Now, let's take a look at this next point here, and that is the personhood and full deity of the Holy Spirit. And before we actually launch into this particular point, I want to give you some uh, counsel because we are talking about the Holy Spirit here. And it's interesting that the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is the one of the three persons of the Godhead that we can blaspheme. And if we blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, the Bible defines that as the unpardonable sin. So we need to be very careful when we tread on this particular subject that we tread very softly. So let me give you a couple of things to think about here as we begin. Uh, as you look, uh, before we actually get into the, the Holy Spirit, as you look at the Gospel of John, John tells us this. In John chapter 15 and verse 26, he says, Even the Spirit of truth, this is Jesus talking, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, what does, he, what does Jesus say he will do? He will testify of who? So Jesus tells us that the job or the purpose of the Holy Spirit, one of his jobs is to what? Testify of him, to talk about Jesus. He is, to, he is to reveal Jesus to us and help us understand him better. Now, in just a few breaths later, Jesus makes this statement in John 16 and verse 13, talking about the Holy Spirit, for he shall not speak of himself. So he comes to reveal who? Jesus and not himself, right? So he's come to reveal Jesus to us. He hasn't come to speak about himself. Now, it's interesting. The Bible tells us that, as it describes us, the putting together of God's word, the Bible says, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, right? So we believe that the Bible is, is, it has been guided by the Holy Spirit as men of God wrote, now, if that is the case, and I believe it is because that's what the Bible says, we would, it would only stand to reason that if the Holy Spirit inspired God's word and he has come to reveal Jesus and not himself, that there's not going to be very much information in the Bible about the Holy Spirit. There is enough for us to get a good enough understanding to get us to the kingdom of heaven. But we have to remember that the purpose of God's word is to not reveal the Holy Spirit, but the purpose of God's word that was inspired by the Holy Spirit is to reveal who? Jesus Christ. And this is what inspiration tells us in the book Acts of the Apostles, page 51. She says, it is not essential for us to be able to define just what the Holy Spirit is. It is not what? It's not essential. In other words, this is something that we should not get too bogged down on. After all, it is God that we are talking about here. So she says it's not essential. Does that mean we shouldn't study it? No, we, should, we can study it. We can look at what the Bible says, but it's not essential for us to be able to define just what the Holy Spirit is. And then just in the next page, page 52, we read this last week. She said the nature of the Holy Spirit is a what? It's a mystery. Men cannot explain it because the Lord has not what? He hasn't revealed it to them. Regarding such mysteries which are too deep for human understanding, what does she say? Silence is golden. So we won't delve into the mystery of the Holy Spirit. 
We're just going to look at the plain statements about the Holy Spirit in the Word of God, okay? So that's what we're going to do in our time together here uh, that, that is remaining. Now, let me just be clear so we understand. Last week, we've already established this point, but in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, the Bible says, But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie against the Holy Ghost? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Is the Holy Spirit God? Yes, he is. The Bible makes that very plain to us here that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit who is God. One of the strongest arguments in favor of the personality of the Holy Spirit, that he is a person, is the Gospel John. The Gospel of John. In fact, in three chapters, verses 14, or chapters, sorry, chapters 14 through 16, John refers to the Holy Spirit as he, him, or himself over 20 times. Let me share with you just a couple of those so you can satisfy your curiosity. This is John chapter 14 and verse 17. The Bible says, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him for he dwelleth in you and shall be in you. So it right there refers to the Holy Spirit as him and he in that one Bible passage. Here's another one. John chapter 16, verse 13. How be it when? He, the spirit of truth is come. He will guide you into all truth for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak and he will show you things. It's almost like John is going out of his way to make it very plain that the Holy Spirit is a person. He, 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 him. He says it over and over and over again just in one verse. Here's another one. John chapter 14 and verse 26, he shall teach you all things. John 15 verse 26, he shall testify of me. John 16 and verse 14, he shall what? Over and over again in the gospel of John, John refers to the Holy Spirit as he, as a person. He seems to indicate that he is a person. Now, let me share with you a little piece of research that I found out that was quite persuasive to me when I studied it for the first time. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, it's found in the Gospel of John, John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. I've read this passage a number of times, and I never really uh, mind some of the depths here, and I don't think I have fully reached a complete understanding of it, but enough to satisfy my curiosity. John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, listen to what the Bible says. It says this, Jesus is talking, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you... Another comforter, or some translations say helper, another comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth. I can't tell you how many times I've read that Bible passage, but I've never asked myself the question, who's the other comforter? Right, you have, the Bible says, I will give you another comforter. By using the word another, you are suggesting that there are at least two. Are you not? You can't have another, just one. Right? So, so Jesus says, and I will pray the Father, and he will send you another comforter. That means that there's already a comforter. So who is the other comforter? That's the question that I ask myself as I looked at this Bible passage for the first time through a new pair of glasses. Who is this other comforter? The word comforter there in the Greek is only used five times in the New Testament, so it makes it easy to study. In every single passage, except for one, it's talking about the Holy Spirit. 
The one other passage is found in the, gospel, in the book of 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. The Bible says this. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have a advocate. That is the Greek word there that is used for comforter. We have an advocate with the Father. And who is our advocate? Jesus Christ the righteous. So who is the other comforter according to scripture? So you have Jesus as our comforter, and he says, I'm going to send you another comforter who is the what? The Holy Spirit. Now, this is very interesting to me because the word, therefore, another in the Greek is a fascinating word. There are two different Greek words that can be used that can be translated into the English another. But when John chose the one Greek word, he used the Greek word that is defined another of the what? There is another Greek word that is defined another of a different sort. But that's not the word that John chose. When he wrote down another comforter, he said it would be another comforter of the same sort. And who is the other comforter? Jesus. Now, I believe it stands to reason that if Jesus is a person, as we have seen from Scripture, and the Holy Spirit is another of the same sort, that he would be a person just like Jesus is a person. Amen? Now, not only do we see that in this particular Bible passage, another comforter, but the Bible refers to him, refers to the Holy Spirit as he, as I mentioned multiple times throughout Scripture. But notice the other characteristics that the Bible gives of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to read the Bible references here. If you want this list later on, just let me know. I'll email it to you. You can copy it down afterwards. But I just want you to see this big picture here. So the Bible refers to the Holy Spirit that he has intellect. He has knowledge. He has a mind. He has emotions. He makes decisions. He testifies. He teaches. He guides. He reproves. He intercedes. He commands. He forbids and prohibits. He can be obeyed, which means he can be disobeyed. He can be resisted. He can be vexed. He can be blasphemed. He can be lied to. And he can be what? Communed with. How can you do this with a power? How can you do this with a force? How can you do this with the Spirit? The Bible, as it gives us the characteristics of the Holy Spirit, it gives us the idea that this is a person. How can you grieve a power? You can't grieve a power. You grieve a person. Would you say amen? How can you have communion with a power? You can't have communion with a power. You commune with a person. The Bible makes it very clear that the Holy Spirit is not just a force that emanates from the Father or Jesus, but he is a person just as much as God and Jesus is a person. In fact, this is exactly what Ellen White says. Talking to the students at Avondale College, she made this statement. Manuscript release, volume 7, page 299. Again, she wrote this in 1899. She said this, we need to realize that the Holy Spirit, who is as much a person as God is a person, is walking through these grounds. Don't you like these little one-liners that just, just, just hammer it home. He is this person as much as the Father is a person. Done deal, right? And that, that goes along with what the Bible says that we've seen so far. It describes the Holy Spirit in the terms of him, he, himself, and so on. Here's another statement. Manuscript release, volume 20, page 69, 1906, she wrote this. It says this, the Holy Spirit is a person for he beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit has a 
personality, else he could not bear witness to our spirits and with our spirits that we are the children of God. He must also be a divine person, else he could not, uh, could not search out the secrets which lie hidden in the mind of God. So the Bible, or the spirit of prophecy here refers to him as a person, as a personality, and again, as a person, one more time. Here's another one, and I'll just, I'll end it on this one. Special testimonies to ministers uh, and workers. Number 10, page 37. She wrote this in 1897. The prince of the power of evil. Who is that? The prince of the power of evil can only be held in check by the power of God in the third person of the Godhead. Who's the third person of the Godhead? Holy Spirit. Somebody ought to say, praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord that we can have the power of the Holy Spirit that can hold and check the power of the evil one that is seeking to lead God's people in the path of rebellion and disobedience. The great promise that we have in Scripture in the Gospel of Luke chapter 11 and verse 13, if ye then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the... Holy Spirit to them that, how many of you are thankful for that promise? God wants to give each one of us the Holy Spirit, and he is just one prayer away. Hallelujah. Amen. He's just one prayer away. He wants to give the Holy Spirit to them that ask. I hope this last statement is an encouragement to you. Desire of Ages, page 672. Only to those who wait humbly upon God, who watch for his guidance and grace, is the Spirit given. Who is the Spirit given to? Those who wait humbly upon God and what? Watch for his guidance and grace. Is the Spirit given. This promised blessing, claimed by faith, brings all other blessings in its train. What a powerful promise that is. Ask for the Holy Spirit and he will be given to you. Listen, in the end, brothers and sisters, it matters little that you can prove this particular doctrine. Of course, we want to know what the doctrine is. We, we need to understand this. But it matters little to just have the proof. What really matters is that you're following the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because there will be people in the kingdom of heaven who followed the leading of the Holy Spirit who did not understand this Bible doctrine from Scripture, but they followed the promptings of the Holy Spirit. As he led them along, they followed meekly and humbly in the path that he laid before their feet. And that's really what it means to be a son or daughter of God. That's the more important point. We can get caught up in all the details. We can have long argumentations on the Greek and the Hebrew. I think this, I think that. We can throw Bible passages back and forth at each other like hand grenades. We can come up with all kinds of conspiracy theories about the spirit of prophecy that somebody modified this statement or somebody added that statement. We can come up with all that stuff if we want to, but it's the spirit of God in our hearts when we're doing that. Do we love our brother as we love ourselves while we're doing that? Do we care for one another as Jesus cares for us? Are we willing to lay down our life for that particular individual that we are arguing doctrine with? 
It matters little to be able to prove these things. Of course, we want to understand them. But what matters most is that we are allowing the Holy Spirit to move and guide us in our lives. Because ultimately, he is the only connection that we have to the kingdom of heaven. He's our connection at this point. And we want him in our hearts and in our midst. Would you say amen? How many of you want to say, Lord, please fulfill this promise in my life. I'm asking for the Holy Spirit to lead me and to guide me. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that we can study your word together. Father, we're thankful that we can come to a little clearer understanding of the Godhead. Father, we are satisfied that there are some things we're just not going to understand. And we're satisfied with that. And we look forward to gaining more knowledge and more understanding when we get to the kingdom of heaven. But until that time, Lord, may we be satisfied with what you have seen fit to reveal to us in your inspired writings. And may we camp out on the weight of evidence. Lord, we ask, we appeal that you would give to us the gift that you have promised in the medium of the Holy Spirit, that he would guide us as we seek to be the sons and daughters of God that you have called each one of us to be. Bless us, Lord, I pray. And keep us close by your side, I ask. For we pray it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.